0: You are listening. Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host, Anne Levine. Welcome to Ukraine 242 a weekly show featuring interviews with key people currently on the ground in Ukraine and important academic experts in Slavic studies. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR for the Pacifica Radio Network. In the next half hour, we will explore various aspects of the role of women in both Ukrainian and Russian culture and politics. Especially in relation to wars. We start our exploration with a conversation with Colleen Lucy, assistant professor of Russian and Slavic studies at the University of Arizona. Lucy is a specialist in Russian literature and visual culture of the long 19th century. She has written about the representation of commercial sex in literature and art and her research and teaching interests include the history of Russian theater and performance from the 19th century to the present and Russian language instruction. Welcome Dr. Lucy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Tell us about feminism in the Slavic cultures. You have told me that feminism does exist there and has a history. The history of
1: feminism in this region is intersectional between Slavic cultures. And I think there's a great potentiality for women in Russia and women in Ukraine and women in Belarus to unite forces to promote peace in their regions.
0: Do you think that the resistance in Russia among women is stronger than it is with men?
1: There is a general tendency that sociologists and political scientists have recently noted that the most visible participants in public demonstrations or public manifestations of anti-war sentiment have been women in Russia. There are some ways to explain this because women may be taking part in these movements or may be more visible because they're not necessarily as threatening to the dominant culture as having men protest. And so there's a kind of reading here that there's more flexibility for women than men to protest because the stakes are lower because they have lower value in a patriarchal system that highly prioritizes male protectionism. At the same time, I would say this is nothing new. From the Soviet period to the present and even earlier, women have been at the forefront of revolutionary movements. Look at Alexandra Kollontai and the Bolshevik Revolution. Look at women at the end of the Soviet Union. These are long-term trends. And I think it's because there's something specific about the region when you are so disenfranchised from a political system, it does radicalize you in ways that it does not necessarily in a more systematic, democratically governed society.
0: I understand that you have done work about the images of women in Russian literature and culture.
1: Could you tell me about that? Sure. My research is devoted to the image of women in various forms of media, predominantly in the 19th century. And what I argue in my book and in other publications is that distinct comparisons from 19th century works, works that are very popular and well-known in Russia and are taught in schools images of romanticized women that we see produced in works of literature or fine art do have a kind of reverberation in the cultural sphere in the 20th and 21st century. And if we think about women who go against the grain, women who don't follow traditional norms of what's expected, that they become mothers, that they're dutiful, dutiful wives, right These women who are I would you know categorize them as transgressive, there's not a far leap to be made between women who, remove themselves from the patriarchal sphere in one way, and also fight against autocracy or totalitarianism on the other. And so if we draw some comparisons between how now women in Russia or Ukraine are fighting back, we can see that there's a long tradition of women's resistance in these regions. So some of the earliest feminist, radical socialist feminists come out of the early 20th century in Russia. And that tradition continues to inform thinking in these regions in Eastern Europe. Sadly, global feminism of the 20th and 21st century oftentimes overlooks these regions that are quintessential to women's history. But that is to say that in the current moment, in the, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Ukrainian women have played a huge role in resisting Russia's invasion and its occupation in both direct and indirect ways. So we see women, although not fighting necessarily in combat, they're oftentimes directly involved in producing and disseminating resources. And they're on the front lines in terms of child care. And what we see is images of women underground caring for their children as their husbands or brothers are fighting. Now, to switch to the Russian perspective, many of them, of the most courageous protesters and the women who are speaking back to power right now are indeed feminist and non-traditional gendered identities who are using their platforms, whatever way they can, to speak truth to power, to great risk to their own lives. So this tradition, I think, of thinking about women's positionality in a return to kind of traditional values under Putin, we see a strong resistance in Eastern Europe to those kinds of models.
0: What is happening with women in Russia different than what was happening in the Chechnyan War?
1: It's a really interesting comparison to think about what's happening right now. Russia's invasion of Ukraine versus Russia's war in Chechnya because they're oftentimes drawn as parallels. Conscription is mandatory in in Russia. It's mandatory two years of service. So many men who were conscripted and then sent to Chechnya were essentially sentenced to death in armed battle. And the mothers had no recourse to even find where their sons were, if they were dead or alive, if they had been wounded. And so there was a large movement of mothers of soldiers lost in Chechnya who gathered forces and who petitioned the government, and it did have an impact on the public consciousness. The tide turned against the Chechnyan war in Russia when mothers organized and rallied to admit what had happened to their sons. Take that today, compare it to what is happening right now, Russia's war in Ukraine, there's aspects that are less hopeful. Mothers of soldiers who are conscripted or who volunteer to fight in Ukraine are guaranteed a certain monetary honorarium for the loss of life if their son perishes. And there was a much to do about an uh, image of a family who used the money that was given to them to buy a car called a Lada, which is a relatively inexpensive vehicle And there were images of this on social media saying that, you know, our son is gone, but at least we have this car in order to remember him and to, you know, travel freely. Of course, the response from the opposition was, how can you possibly compensate the loss of a son with a car? In the current moment, there is not a mass movement among mothers to protest conscription of their sons, or they volunteering in Ukraine. But that can change. Because in 2022, things can go viral and things in the social media sphere, as much as the Russian state hopes to regulate them, not everything can or will be. So if there are more stories like this or things come out in more public settings, I think that that could be a major tide-shifting move. If the women, as mothers, who are and daughters and wives, begin en mass protesting the usage of their sons, their husbands, of their brothers as cannon fodder. In the Ukrainian context, a similar thing is happening, in which women are no longer in mass supporting the use of their husbands to fight a war that they're not sure or they're appropriately prepared to fight. So, men who are signing up in Ukraine to fight have on average a couple of days' life expectancy because the fighting is so brutal. And this is a contested aspect of the fight in Ukraine right now. To what degree can this kind of loss of life be sustainable? And I think Zelensky, as president of Ukraine, has addressed this, but it will continue to haunt the region. The disaster of this war and the massive loss of life, it will be decades if not centuries before, we can come to terms between Ukraine and Russia over what has happened, what has transpired. Because an entire generation of Ukrainian men who have been wiped out by this war. And we also see Ukrainian women affected with a large loss of life. And many people will be displaced. Many women and children will be displaced. And we'll have refugees and displaced persons that will need to be incorporated into different social structures as refugees. So I see this as a long-term issue for Europe. According to
0: Ukrainian sources, I've read about half a million Ukrainians have been brought in or sent to Russia. And I wonder, is that accurate, would you say?
1: It is so hard at this point in time to nail down the exact number of people who have been forcibly displaced from Ukraine to Russia. But however many it is, it's an atrocity and it's a violation of human rights to forcibly move people, to take away their documents, take away their IDs, to not allow them freedom of movement. This is a violation of their human rights and it needs to be documented so that there can be repercussions for these actions. As short as our attention span is in the West, I think that we will need more people to read Russian and read Ukrainian to decipher what is actually happening there. Because this is going to be decades of resolve, decades of investigation, decades of trying to come to terms with the people who have lost lives or lost loved ones, and also finding the stories of those people that you mentioned who have been forcibly displaced. This is not over. Anytime soon. And this comes in the cusp of massive oppression of civil rights in Russia and the displacement of people within Russia as well. So I think that I think we'll have to turn towards the UN and human rights observers in order to find out more specifics, especially in the, in the region in Mariupol and that region, because we know full well that the people were forcibly moved. The horrible moment in world history that this is happening, and that there's not more being done in order to promote peace in this region. What about the chance that people are being trafficked? I think it's a very real concern. We know from historical records that this is often the case that once people are displaced or taken into custody and their identifications and their government issues documents are taken into the control of third parties, it is very easy to then traffic them or put them within migratory processes whereby they are victims of exploitative labor practices. So it could very well be that women in this region in particular are being trafficked against their will it does not necessarily mean that it is absolutely happening for sure. But it is definitely a concern for human rights watchers in this region because there's a history of this happening in conflict. Look if you look at the former Yugoslavian space. When this happened and there was a disintegration of the former Yugoslavia and there were ethnic conflicts and genocides in this region, there was a massive amount of loss of life and alongside it, rape of women and trafficking of women. And using rape as a means of war... We know most likely this is happening in eastern Ukraine, that Russian soldiers most likely are using rape as a means of war. And of course, this is unacceptable and a complete travesty, and that this will be something that Russia will have to answer for, that women are bearing the brunt of the war most specifically in these moments, in these very contentiously disputed regions of eastern Ukraine."
0: You are listening to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. In this half hour, we are looking at the role of women in these Slavic cultures. We've been hearing from Dr. Colleen Lucy, assistant professor of Russian and Slavic studies at the University of Arizona, describe some of the role of feminism and women protesting the current war but also the human cost they are suffering. We touched on the thousands of people who have been kidnapped into Russia and the great vulnerability and danger that is thus being inflicted on them. I'm your host, Ann Levine, for Pacifica Network from WOMR, community radio in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us this half of the show mentions torture and domestic abuse please listen at your discretion to further explore the problem of forced deportation from ukraine as well as some of the other darker societal pressures leading to violence and harm in the area, Marcy Shore spoke with us from Yale University, where she teaches modern European intellectual history. Her research focuses on the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She is the translator of Michal Glovinsky's The Black Seasons, and the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918 through 1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. In 2018, she received a Guggenheim Fellowship for her current book project, A History of Phenomenology in East Central Europe, tentatively titled, Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters That Came About While Searching for Truth. Welcome, Dr. Shores. Thank you for joining us. Supposedly, around half a million Ukrainians have been taken into Russian territory. What do you know about that? Is that true?
2: Yes. I, I haven't seen anything contesting this
0: why are they doing this? I heard someone suggest that this is one way of handling the population problem in Russia. There, is that there have true?
2: been all sorts of theories. I mean, there have been theories that there is demographic anxiety in Russia. There have been theories that, you know, they want to take children and raise them as Russians, that it's a means of genocide. I mean, it's a means of it removing a potentially nationally conscious next generation. So much of what Putin's regime has been doing is so nihilistic and so self deceiving and so irrational that I'm kind of hesitant to give it some rational explanation. And there's a political science assumption that all factors being equal, people will act rationally. But in fact, all things are never equal and people act irrationally all the time. And Putin is destroying Russia. There's nothing rational about what he's doing. When I mean, everything he's doing is bad in the end for everybody, and the real reasons for it exist only in, in his head, and nobody really knows what they are. It's a negative-sum game to philosophers, and Kia volodya Malenko, and Tanya Gorkova, who described this in a podcast. It's not even just a zero-sum game. Putin's destroying Ukraine, and he's destroying Russia.
0: In this reign of terror, we're hearing some horrific stories about what Russians have done to Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian soldiers. Can you talk about the
2: phone call? The phone call between the 20-year-old soldier and his 40-year-old mother. Yes. So there was a phone call between a 20-year-old Russian soldier in Ukraine back home to his 40-year-old mother, in which he graphically described gruesome torture techniques they were using on captured Ukrainians. And the first thing that was striking about this was that the mother was excited by the descriptions. And there was something titillating, almost kind of quasi-sexual about the way this was being described, something that was very exciting. I mean, there wasn't any sense of why we were torturing Ukrainians. There was quasi-sexual voyeurism and sadism going on quasi-senspectuous because it was a phone call between the mother and the son. And then some five minutes into the phone call, the soldier's son says, yeah, I kept thinking, like, wouldn't it be great to try out some of these techniques on dad? And so, I mean, you don't know anything about this family, but you know right away that there is a deep history of domestic violence in this family. And that whatever the relationships are between the mother and the father and the son, something is just pathologically wrong. And I think this issue of domestic violence, which became very important in the Belarusian protests two years ago, which so nearly succeeded in overthrowing Lukashenko.
0: Protests against President Lukashenko and led largely by women in
2: Belarus. What happened in Belarus was that a language that feminists had developed to talk about domestic violence became a language that everyone could use to talk about how they were being treated by a brutal dictatorial regime. And it turns out that one out of every three women in Belarus was a victim of domestic violence. And so domestic violence became also a kind of metaphor about how people were being treated. I mean, I think there's something about a level of violence. and There's something going on like that in Russia. And I think that domestic violence is a very important theme in what's going on in Russia, too. My sociologist, short Onyar Schwartz, talks about something in Russia called a sensitivity threshold. How Putin has systematically blunted people's sensitivity to gruesome violence over the past couple decades in various ways, that it seeped into the culture in such a way that it has just become part of how people relate to one another. And that even in like your light romantic comedy or your film that's a love story, You get the gruesome torture scene, the graphic violence, as if you're just trying to inoculate people to it. And when the soldier said, wouldn't it be great to try out these things on dad? And they start talking about how delightful this would be. You think there's something deeply, deeply gone wrong in this society. The question is, why are the Russians doing this? Why are the Russians coming across the border and slaughtering people for no reason? And it's understandable why the Ukrainians are fighting. They know exactly why they're fighting. And they don't want to live under a reign of terror. They don't want to live under Putin's, you know, neo-totalitarian regime. The real question is, why are the Russians doing this? What do you think the answer is? Oh, something has to have happened to blunt thinking. I mean, some people have been talking about what's happening in Russia. as not mobilizing a population, but demobilizing a population. Creating a population of people who just go along with what's happening, you know, who say, I'm not interested in politics. They're being told that they are liberating their Russian-speaking Ukrainian brothers from the Ukrainian fascist regime. Now, it's this Ukrainian fascist regime that is, you know, apparently run by a Russian-speaking Jewish comedian, but we're in this realm of post-truth, so contradictions don't seem to matter. But I was hopeful that when those 20-year-old Russians who had been told that they were refighting the Second World War and liberating their brothers from fascism, when they got to these places in eastern Ukraine that are entirely Russian-speaking and people, their grandparents' age, come out on the street in front of their tanks to shout at them, nobody wants you here, go home. I was thinking that that could be a moment where they would lay down their arms and say, okay, I don't know what we're doing here. But in fact, most of them have followed orders. Although some have defected and you know, among those who have surrendered, there have been places opened where Zelensky has promised to shelter these people that when you read the Ukrainian reports about these Russian soldiers who have surrendered or and are in hiding from their own army, it basically reads like a domestic violence shelter for women who have escaped from an abusive relationship.
0: Speaking of domestic violence and what it's doing to fuel some of the terror in Russia and in Belarus. Is this true also in Ukraine
2: that there's domestic violence? It's a good question. I don't know the statistics on that. I think in general, Ukraine is a place where, especially among a young generation, there has been all sorts of questions about sexuality, about feminism, about domestic violence, that are about the past, about the relationship to Poles, about the relationship to Jews, not that have been magically fixed, but that are now being faced and discussed. I've worked with fairly significant numbers now of Ukrainian students and Ukrainian graduate students, and I believe in this generation that they can take this country places where it hasn't been before, and that they can be a model of what it means to not be sucked back into the morass of of, of a dark past, but to learn from that past what you need and move forward to make a better future.
0: Thank you so much. I so appreciate a chance to speak to you.
2: My pleasure.
0: i jasna, going ja, oh, to there yeah. yeah. Quale incensieni l'istio vestio ti. Nebo, divino, nevo libocchi da za bogia cosa, perla mia sino pitto More thanks to Drs. Colleen Lucy and Marcy Shore. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. Music, A Moonlit Night. Performed by Gymnasia Kragni Symphony Orchestra and Choir. To see pictures of our guests and for more information, go to Ukraine242.com. If you wish to send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115 and record your message. It will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24-station radio network. That number is 510-883-3115. This is
1: Ann Levine. Until next week on Ukraine 242.